Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear from the Skipper Expo in Limerick, the largest annual get-together of the fishing industry, and we have a new pier for Hoth Harbour. Last weekend, the University of Limerick played host to the Skipper Expo, the largest event for the fishing industry in the country. Businesses from across Europe and representative organisations from Ireland were there in force to show their wares and to network. Lorna Siggins went along for Seascapes and met some of the people there and found out about their areas of the marine business. But first she met with Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Charlie McConlogue, who is making an announcement at the Expo. Yeah, so I'm opening up a new uh, sea fishery sustainability scheme um, to provide uh, capital support for on on board investment that would aid efficiencies on boats, whether that's in relation to catch gear or in relation to engine and the running of a boat. We've had a similar scheme in the past. Um, obviously, we're waiting now in the new maritime and fisheries fund schemes to be up and running, and this is a scheme that I'm operating in the meantime uh, to provide capital investment and support to fishers to help them go about their business in a, a way that's more efficient, but also to really importantly to enhance profitability. And of course profitability is a big thing now uh, for people who are looking at the decommissioning scheme or who may have decided they didn't want to go for it or the take-up seems to be quite low at the moment. Yeah we don't know yet so offers were made a few weeks ago and I know a lot of there were 64 initial applications so um, a lot of people are considering now whether whether it's the right thing for them or not. I had set it up at the request of the fishing representatives themselves. Obviously Brexit posed a real challenge from the outset whenever the, the UK made the decision to exit fisheries was always very much in the right line. Access to British waters where we catch one third of our fish, or Irish fleet does, was very much up for discussion and we didn't know if we'd continue that. The outcome of the trade and cooperation agreement meant we continued to have access to British waters, which was an important outcome, but it's meant that the European fleet, and particularly ourselves as the closest neighbour of um, Britain, have had an impact on our quota, 15%. So after that, 15% between now and 2026 of our quota is impacted. So I set up the task force, bringing all the fishing organisations together. They made a number of requests of me, one of them being decommissioning. It's an option, it's a voluntary scheme, you know, it's an appropriate option for some. Certainly not for everyone, we still have a very strong fleet after this. It doesn't impact our national quota, decommissioning. What it does, if if there's less vessels actually uh, fishing our national quota, it means that the quota that's freed up by those boats that decommission will be redistributed among the remaining, the, the, the vast majority of the remaining boats. So it strengthens the economic viability then of the remaining boats. So this time last year you were talking about fighting tooth and nail to get some of that quota back. Have you still got that tooth and nail out? I have, I have it out every month and every every time I engage swords on it, yeah. At the moment we're in the middle of, and have been actually for the last couple of months, engagement and negotiations with Norway in relation to blue whiting in particular. You know, fighting to try and improve our situation again, both in terms of protecting you know, uh, and valuing access to Irish waters, but also trying to maximise the amount of fish that we get for Irish fishers. So three years ago, when I took up office, nine percent there was a transfer of nine percent of blue whiting from uh, our quota to Norway. Um, over the last two years, I fought that down to four percent. So it means we keep more of our blue whiting. Fighting now this year to keep that at four percent again, and also to to try and protect and value access to our waters. So we've taken a hard line, um, protecting our national and representing our fishing interests, and I'm hopeful of a good outcome again. Um, but it remains to be seen um, until the ink is dry on the deal. We don't know, but uh, I'm fighting very hard, yeah. Okay, this is a principle <coughs> here now. Norway's not an EU member, and yet it's looking for more area now for blue whiting. Uh, absolutely, and I mean, the key thing I've said is, and obviously, listen, I mean, the likes of mackerel and blue whiting, etc., 
roams across all waters and you have to engage with all countries in relation to setting a, a manageable quota and, and catch rate that doesn't undermine the stocks for the years ahead. So those negotiations can be can be difficult. We're seeing that with macro at the moment, where there isn't agreement, you know, outside with other states outside the EU. In terms of any access to Irish waters, I've been very clear in the negotiations that, that there must be a value in that. It must be a good outcome from, for Ireland. And we must, in the process, maximise the fish catch that we get. So that's the approach I've been taking. I've been working closely with the fishing representatives themselves. And we've all been fighting the national interest here, and I'm hopeful we'll get a strong outcome. So I'm with Michael Desmond, Chairman of the National Inshore Fishermen's Association and there's also the National Inshore Fishermen's Organisation. Michael, could you just explain the difference between the two for listeners who may not be familiar? Well, under European law, inshore vessels are categorised as being under 12 metres in length and using static gear only. So... Irish inshore fishermen, an awful lot of them don't fit into that category as some of them are just over 12 metres and some that are under 12 metres also use tow gear like we have several members in NIFO who are pelagic fishermen, pair trawlers for herring, sprat etc. So the reason for the second organisation was to cover those people. Where do you fish yourself? I fish in West Cork, um, a place called Connemore Pier, where you get the ferries into the local islands there, um, here Island and Shocken, and that's down the, the very tip of Roaring Water Bay. Beautiful part of the world, but it has been very tough, particularly with the shrimp. Yes, this past season in particular is the first time that I've ever seen the shrimp market to collapse in, I suppose, over 40 years. I, I, I never before saw it to happen, and this year... Historically, from October to Christmas, the price of shrimp would rise. This year it fell, and come December, the three main buyers, Shellfish de la Mar, Aeronov in Castletown Bear, Saframar in uh, Wexford, um, actually completely stopped buying them. So we had nothing to do but bring in our pots and hope for the best. Basically, it didn't recover, it didn't reopen, and um, it was a fishery that was taken from us under through no fault of our own it was because of the cost of living crisis in um, Spain basically the buyers couldn't afford to freeze it I suppose and if the housewives were given a choice between heating their homes or uh, buying high-end shellfish even though it's our livelihood it is still a luxury product in the continent so that was the choice they made and unfortunately we suffered we've said it to the department and the minister and hopefully he will be able to do something for us like he did with the pig farmers when they suffered a similar disruption. However, we're three months waiting now, but hopefully there'll be a decision made soon. It is the most important sector in the Irish fleet, the insurer. It is by far. It's one of the most important sectors, I suppose, because it's, there's actually more employment in it, and an awful lot of the employment is still... Uh, small family companies, you know, you have fathers and sons or fathers and daughters fishing in small boats, nephews, cousins, neighbours, it's still very, very much family orientated. Hi, yeah, I'm uh, Sally Atkinson, I'm one of the directors and project managers at Parkall Marine Engineering in Whitby. Do you do much Irish business then? Yes, uh, it's the first time we've attended the Irish show and it's on the back of success of uh, two vessels we built recently. Um, one we finished in 2022, the Green Isle 2 for Michael Kavanagh. First export to Ireland was uh, Ambitious 2 for David and Nell Kerwin in 2021. And where is most of your business then? Historically, well, we've always worked in the fishing industry in the UK and built for clients 
you know, up, up and down from like north of Shetland, Orkney, northeast of Scotland, uh, Peterhead, Fraserburgh, down to you know the southwest. We're currently building for a company down in the southwest into fish and then into Wales and west coast of Scotland. It was good to be able to sort of build our first export for the two Irish guys and work in the south of Ireland. And have you another order maybe coming from Ireland as well? We've got a couple of inquiries in the pipeline, nothing definite, but yeah, we're here to try and capitalise on the success of the first two boats. And what's the average size of boat that you build? 26, 27 metres length overall, under 24 metres registered. That's the, the two Irish ones have been that sort of size. And what's the mood like in the British fishing industry? Last year was challenging for everybody, the way of the world, you know, with the Ukraine war and fuel prices, the inflation generally. The industry was uh, a little bit more cautious and with regards to progressing new bills but, but since the turn of this year I think you know obviously the fuel prices have come down a bit the fishing's good and we're picking up you know lots of inquiries to build vessels so it, it, you know I think 2023 is going to be a good year for everybody really with regards to you know building vessels and so I'm at Jimmy Walsh Propellers and Marine Engineering I'm on with Jimmy and Christine you are from Wexford. We're from Wexford, yeah. We operate from Rosslare Harbour in Wexford and we, our main focus of our business will be to maintain and alterations, refurbishment of marine propellers. It's a fairly niche thing, there's not that many people at it. We've been established since 1994, but that being said, uh, previously I worked at a company called Marindus Engineering. Marindus closed in 2009 and I took up that business myself after that. My two sons work in the business with me. We've developed a lot since then. We've brought in a lot of new equipment and new machinery. We for scanning and analyzing blade surfaces. We have we do dynamic balancing. We supply a large amount of stern gear, propellers, shafts, nuts, everything like that. Our main customers will be the fishing community, but we would also do a lot with leisure crafts all over the country as well. We do business with customers in Northern Ireland and in Scotland and parts of the UK as well. Like Most people that come to our workshop expect to be coming to somebody's back garden where somebody has a little shed where to do a little bit of this kind of thing. Most people are pleasantly surprised when they come to see that it's actually people have sustainable jobs in this in that community doing something that really nobody gives a second thought to. And does the size of the boat matter, Jimmy? Anything from a yacht up to a super trawler? Yeah, from little boats with outboards up to you know the big passenger ferries we do the whole lot obviously big passenger ferries and that kind of thing are a little bit harder to get in at but we would do pretty much up to around 3.2 meter propellers we can measure them and scan them and balance them pretty pretty easily you know and what is the most frequent damage done to a propeller there's two there's there's um contact damage where somebody hits a rock hits something into harbor you know, people with a nozzle, a rock goes through the nozzle. You know, some propellers are in a nozzle. Like, if you can't fit on a big enough propeller, you'll use a nozzle, and that intensifies your drive. So, a lot of trawlers and fishing boats, they would have a nozzle, and the rocks, you know, in shallow harbors, rocks go through the nozzle, and that causes them chips and knocks and things. But another problem with people have is electrolysis, and electrolysis where you have an earth leak in your engine. People don't notice it for a couple of months. They're unaware of it until the next time they take the boat out, and then you have a lot of 
electrolysis damage so you'll see like a pinky kind of a colour comes on the propellers and the alloys from inside are eaten away so we would restore that like that's a lot of what we do as well you know. One niche thing that we have that we've gotten a very good reputation for is adjusting the pitches of the propeller so if you get it if you change your engine or you change your gearbox and it's a couple of degrees out on the ratio you know so you go from a 2 to a 2.5 ratio you'll have to adjust your propeller if you were driving your car along on a motorway in third gear you know that kind of thing so we would we'll adjust we'll adjust the angle of the blades and uh, that corrects that problem that's we do a lot of that and do you give people advice on maintaining their propellers we do we give people advice on how to maintain their propellers and maintain their shaft lines how to try and avoid electrolysis and how to well you can't teach somebody how to avoid impact damages below the water so it's impossible to see it you know but we would as much as we could we'd give people advice and whatever help we could yeah we do maintenance for the ferries as well we would do particularly for Stenaline and for Irish ferries in Rosslare Harbour we would do regular maintenance for them and then for the people that work for us that gives people a variety of work because instead of you know instead of repairing and refurbishing propellers all day every day you could spend a week on a ferry maintaining a ramp for them so it gives people a diversity of work and it keeps people you know just helps people reduce any monotony that will come from the work like you know i'm sure they never make any mistakes when they're coming in do they <laughs> no small mistakes anyway no <laughs> no they don't make any small yeah, they'd be big yeah, ones yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much indeed Lawrence Cavanaugh, we're at the Skipper Expo and you have a brilliant stand. We're surrounded by coils of rope and pots and nets and everything. How long is Cavanaugh Nets running now in Greencastle and Donegal? Family, my family, before we became a limited company, would have been local business people. Then I formed a limited company in 89 and the business grew from there. So we are inshore fishing gear suppliers and we have a good clientele in the north the whole of Ireland, north and south. So we see those customers and for the show, it's a good chance to catch up with them and talk to journalists as well. And how do you feel the inshore is doing? I know there's a lot of gloom in the bigger boats about the decommissioning scheme. Well, the inshore sector would probably be the most resilient in the, in the fishing industry because they wouldn't have the same overheads or fuel costs as the larger trawlers. And they've been so blessed that the price for shellfish has really held, considering we went through recessions. The price of shellfish, crabs, lobsters and crayfish and velvet crab has been really, really good. So that's what's keeping the inshore industry solvent. Even with all the COVID in Europe, they they were still able to export and export to to the Far East as well, with the live market and the processed market. So the exporters seem to have their job down to a fine art. And obviously I think it's because we are in pristine, clean, healthy waters that there's a big demand for Irish product. What's the biggest change in inshore gear that you've seen since you started your business? Well, when we started first, one of the primary activities would have been gearing people up for commercial drift netting for salmon. And then, do you know what happened? The the salmon fishing was stopped, people were compensated, and that was a dramatic effect. That would have took a huge chunk of turnover out of our business but we compensated then because we had to move with the industry the men that couldn't get licensed to fish salmon moved into potting on a far bigger scale they all got compensation from the government and they invested in the potting industry and the potting industry now is huge and of course you're selling pots that probably last they look like they last forever what's the material now in those pots 
material is basically steel, uh, plastic coated to protect it against the salt water and protect the welding. And then they, they're covered with a netting that we import from Portugal mostly. And we do all the labor for that on our own premises in Drumoir, Greencastle. So we employ quite a few local people to do that. Everything we do is, is Irish sourced. There's no imported other than the netting, but the steel is Irish steel, and it's well Irish steel in the sense that it's bought in Ireland. God knows where I, where that comes from, but the labour is all local as well. But ex- like experienced fishermen, a lot of my men would have been fishermen, and uh, they have the skills to work with the netting and. We're kept busy. We just get a lot of repeat customers, so thank God for that. And the design of the pots, does that change much? The design of the pots changes by trial and error. People experiment, they chance new ideas, then if they catch on commercially, that becomes a big seller and it's constantly evolving. We would see different styles emerging all the time. Every year there would be a new design would come out, but then it has to be tried and proven, and usually after a season of fishing, if it's successful, that goes on to become a, a very commercial product for us then. The one with the bucket on the top, that's for spider crabs, which is a, another lucrative fishery, and all that product is sold to Spain. 90-95% of the shellfish industry would be export product. Very, very, very little of it's consumed at home. It's amazing. The summer months, the warmer weather is better for lobsters, and the autumn time is better for crab. And crayfish are a, a fishery that was under threat, but it seems to have made a dramatic recovery for whatever reason. They make huge money. The Irish fishermen, say at Christmas time, when they're selling the product, could get at the pier side in Ireland, up to 50 euros a kilo. So uh, God knows what what the consumer's paying in Europe when he goes to eat that. I would personally prefer a crab too, but uh, I think crayfish and lobsters are slightly overrated, you know, but not a big consumption in Ireland. It's going to the lucrative, rich European countries, you know. Couldn't beat the crab too. We'll go and have lunch. Lorna Siggins reporting there from the Skipper Expo last weekend. And you heard Minister Charlie McConlogue speaking to Lorna there. And yesterday he was in Hoth to officially open a large new pier specifically designated to provide facilities for trawlers. I went along and met with the Chief Engineer from the Department of Agriculture and Marine, Noel Clancy, who told me about the new facility. We've actually renamed it today the, the fishing pier. This was traditionally the middle pier here, but the area we're standing was formerly a, a rock armour area, wasn't suitable for berthing, all that sort of thing. So there was a need in the harbour for additional berthing space. So this is an idea that we came up with a, a number of years ago. It's brought in approximately 134 metres of additional berthage, which is a huge advantage to the harbour. But in addition to that, we have about 6,500 square metres of laydown area. We're naming it the fishing pier because I think as anyone that's from Hoth will, will know there's quite a lot of leisure and tourism activity there as well. So we're going to try and concentrate that on the western pier 
and concentrate the fishing activity in this new, the fishing pier as we're calling it. Yeah. So what it means that a trawler will come in here, if yeah. I have to spread out my nets, do any work, Correct. I won't be doing it where members of the public are. That's exactly the idea. We're trying to segregate the two. We, we already have a landing facility down here in the landing area, but once vessels land, they will come here, they'll pull their wires, they'll pull their ropes, they'll change their nets, all that sort of activity. We'd previously done that on the western pier, but, but it we felt it was dangerous. Uh, so you had vessels pulling wires and pedestrians walking nearby and all that sort of thing. So this is much safer. It's better for the tourists. It's better for the fishermen. The, the birthage, are people going to be able to come in here to do work on their boats or is it just for... Yes, yes, they, they are. The, the birthing pocket in front uh, is about uh, minus four at lowest astronomical tide. So it's it's as deep as it's going to get it's in minus forty meters yeah. at lowest tide. Yeah. So the so so the larger vessels can come in here. Yes, they can tie up. They can pull. Yes, they can also do work. Uh, we've already had vessels then birthing stern on, pulling out here and all that. So so it's really for the fishing sector to facilitate them. And you can see as you look down here on the right hand side, they've already started storing a lot of their ropes, nets, um, uh, you know, all the, all the accoutrements that go with fishing. Yeah. Is this something you're trying to achieve in harbours, ports around the country, separate completely that kind of onshore network, for want of a better word, for where pedestrians might be? Yeah, it's, it's a delicate balance because I think traditionally in, in fishing harbours, people love to visit them. They like to see fishing boats. They like to see the activity. So we're, we're, we're not trying to, to stop that. But at the same time, we have to recognise that there's, there's a need from a safety perspective to separate the activities. So we're trying to keep the areas open for tourists and pedestrians, mm. but separate and fence off. And you can see this fencing around the perimeter, but people can still walk down to the head of this pier, but they can't walk through the working area. You know? Where else are you working on around the country? Well, the department owns uh, six fishery harbour centres. So this is one of them. Killybegs is probably our largest. Castletown, Beardown and Cork would be w- one of the busier ones. But we also have Dingle, Rossaville and Dunmore East. So we, we work in the six of those harbours. The six of those harbours are owned by the department, operated by the department. And then any construction or enhancement activities we'd carry out there. Engineer Noel Clancy. And trawlers from Holth sometimes travel huge distances to their fishing grounds right out at the edges of Ireland's 200-mile zone. And while some of the fish caught can be exotic, it's unlikely that anyone on board will have an encounter like the next one, as told by Norman Freeman. Albert, the cook on our shabby cargo ship, was a decent enough sort of fellow. But he drank a lot, and as a result, the food was often badly cooked we were served up with greasy stews. Vegetables were often reduced to a soggy pulp. At breakfast, the fried eggs were small, hard yolks with the white singed brown round the edges. The rashers were fried into hard wafers. The grizzled old chief engineer had an intense dislike of Albert. He said, It takes a cook of particular genius to spoil the simple English breakfast. Even the captain who wolfed down anything put before him once complained, this rasher is hard as iron. Albert, a small, wiry man, was made bad-tempered by the words of criticism flung at him by members of the crew. It wasn't all deserved because he could only serve up whatever food supplies were in the ship's chaotic storeroom and larder. This was the fault of Ted, the chief steward, who was careless in looking after provisions, largely because he was pickled a lot of the time. It didn't help their status on board the two that they were daily drinking companions.
We picked up cargo in Antwerp and Hamburg and then set off for West African ports. We called at the ports of Freetown, Conakry, Accra and Port Harcourt. Our final port of call was to be Sapoli, some distance up the Benin River in Nigeria. There we were to load mahogany logs before heading back to Britain. We took a pilot on board at the mouth of the estuary to guide us up the winding waterway. Albert, along with many others, leaned on the railings to watch the mangrove trees and jungle vegetation passing by. Then, unexpectedly, our ship veered to one side. We pressed in against the trees that hung over the river banks. The branches made a whooshing sound as they arched over the deck of our ship. Then there was a shout of alarm. A black snake, about two metres long, apparently resting on a branch, fell down on top of our fellows. It sank its fangs into the forearm of Albert before it was killed with mops and brushes. The poor man was distraught as the punctured flesh began to swell. The captain came into the radio room and ordered me to send a telegram to the shipping agents, telling them to have medical attention ready just as soon as we arrived. Albert, his face fight with anxiety, was taken away to hospital in an ambulance. He had to undergo rigorous anti-venom treatment, but he was released after 24 hours. When he returned to our ship, his whole being radiated relief. The doctors had given him several bottles of some kind of anti-venom solution, a dosage to be taken daily. He had been warned that on no account was he to consume alcohol. From that day on, he never touched a drop. He was gradually transformed. There was a marked improvement in the food. To the surprise of all, he produced some delicious puddings. By the time we got to the Bay of Biscay, his stature and standing on board was high. His checkered aprons were always spotless, and his wispy hair no longer fell down over his nose. I went out of my way to thank him for the good food he was serving up. He responded by saying it would be even better, but for the fact that the storeroom was a complete shambles. He said, that's what happens when the chief steward is a piss artist. Norman Freeman. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcasted it's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. <laughs>